0: So much has already happened in the seventh pit of the pits of fraud, the seventh of the evil pouches that make up the eighth circle of hell. My gosh, we've had Vani Fucci, we've had Vani Fucci's vulgar hand gestures, we've had Vani Fucci strangled by snakes, we've had Vani Fucci turn to ashes and back to himself, Ooh, and we had a centaur run by, so much has happened, and we are just getting started. Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough. And this is the podcast, Walking with Dante, a podcast in which we slow walk. And now, oh boy, trust me, we are really slow walking. Slow walk through Dante's masterwork comedy. We are in Canto 25 of Inferno. We are at lines 34 through 78. And why do I say we're really slow walking? Because we're going to be in this passage for two episodes of this podcast. This is the first of two episodes on the second metamorphosis inside the seventh of the evil pouches of the eighth circle of hell. Wow, that I, I couldn't follow that if I had to. So if you're having trouble following that, you might want to go back and see where we've come from in this long podcast all the way up to this point. We're down in lower hell. We are with the thieves or maybe not just common thieves, that maybe slightly worse forms of thieves. We're down there with them. We have watched a character actually, whoa, basically, say up yours to God. We've seen that character silenced by snakes. We've seen snakes everywhere. It's going on and on. A centaur caucus has been on the scene, and we're going on lines thirty four through seventy eight for the first of two episodes out of Canto twenty five of Inferno. That centaur galloped by us as Virgil was speaking, then down below us three spirits came up, whom neither my guide nor I noticed at first, until they hollered, Who are you guys? At this, we stopped telling tales and turned our attention to them and them alone. We didn't know who they were, but it came to pass, as it does through sheer coincidence a lot of the time, that one of them mentioned the name of another by saying... Where in the world did Chianfa get off to? That's why I, to make my guide pay attention, set a finger from my chin to my nose. If, reader, you're hesitant to believe what I'm about to say, it's no cause for surprise, because I who saw it can still hardly permit myself to believe it. While I held my eyebrows up to get a Good. Look at them. A serpent with six feet suddenly launched itself onto one of them and hugged him tight. Its middle feet got wrapped around his gut. Its front feet took hold of both his arms. Then it stuck its fangs first into one cheek, then into the other. Its back feet stretched down his thighs and it jammed its tail between them, curving it up along his butt. Ivy never gripped a tree trunk so tightly as this nasty beast put its tendrils all around the guy's body. Then, as if they were made of hot wax, they started to fuse together, mixing their colors until neither seemed what he nor it had been at the start. It's the same way that when paper burns, a dark brown color moves in front of a flame, where it's not yet charred black, but all the white is long dead. The other two spirits were looking on, and each one cried out, "'Wow, Angelo, how you morph! See, you're already neither two things nor one!' By that point, the two heads had become one, as the two expressions fused into one face until both were lost. Two arms got made out of four limbs. The thighs, along with the calves, the belly, and the chest, became body parts that were never seen before. Each former feature was obliterated. This perverse image was now both two things and nothing. Such as it was, it went away with slow steps. That's the wild metamorphosis, the second one. In the seventh pit of fraud. As I told you, we're going to take this long passage in two episodes of the podcast. In this episode, I want to just explicate the passage. I want to work through it with you, kind of talking about where pieces of it come from, what's original to Dante, what's being lifted out of other texts, who perhaps or perhaps not, these guys are, and about the metamorphosis itself. So basically just an explication line by line in the passage. In the next episode of this podcast, I want to talk about the implications of this passage, and they are wild. It's best to save that for a second episode. Now, let's just look at this, the second metamorphosis in the Pit of the Thieves. If you remember, Vani had been bitten by a serpent, reduced to ashes, well, it caught fire, reduced to ashes, and then he reconstituted as a person. That was her first metamorphosis. Here's our her second. And it starts out this way. That centaur, that's Caucus. he's in the last episode of this podcast, Caucus, who came running up with the snakes all on his back and a dragon sitting at the nape of his neck. That centaur galloped by as Virgil was speaking. You should just know in the Florentine, it doesn't say as Virgil, was speaking Just to be clear, it says as he was speaking, we just came out of that explanation from Virgil about who Caucus is. But I inserted Virgil here just so it'd be clear, and you'd know who I was talking about. That centaur galloped by as Virgil was speaking. Then down below, as three spirits came up, whom neither my guide nor I noticed at first. Remember, they're kind of standing down on the embankment of the pit, and they're looking down into this dark pit full of serpents. And here comes three guys. They kind of come out of nowhere. They almost seem as if they appear out of nothingness. It's not quite that dramatic, and I can't push the thematics that far, but they do seem to just kind of, (laughs) if we were watching a horror movie, they would just kind of come into presence out of the mist, and that's kind of the way it feels. They don't really notice them at first. Virgil and Dante don't really notice them at first, and then these guys holler, who are you guys? And you should just know that's in the plural, so they are talking about both Virgil and Dante, Dante, who are you? And at this, we pilgrims that stopped telling tales and turn our attention to them and them alone. This is an important bit, and I just want to stop here for the thematics of the passage. There is a great divide between Canto 24 and 25. Remember, in 24, we have several long disquisitions and speeches and back and forths. We have back and forths with Virgil and Dante. Then we have the metamorphosis of Vani Fucci. And then at the end, Vani Fucci himself Gives that long speech in which he identifies himself, calls himself a mule, which we talked about, and basically a colloquialism for a bastard. Maybe also about his sexuality, that is unfertile like a mule. Then uh, Vani Fuji. God describes his crimes, stealing church artifacts and objects, precious objects. And then he launches into that prophecy. Okay, very verbal. Lots of talking. When we cross the divide into 25, the talking gets weirder. It gets unanswered. What happens is the dialogue in 25 is fragmented, and it's often unanswered or answered in not necessarily specific ways. If I wanted to get really fancy, what I'm going to tell you is this is not discourse. Discourse is where, if you and I were out together over coffee, you'd say something, I'd say something, you'd say something, or discourse is a back and forth. All the dialogue in Canto 25 is non discursive. It's not followed up. Remember, it starts with Vani Fucci and his uh, vulgar hand gesture, and he basically says, Up yours, God, there at the front of the canto. It's just this one weird line. Then Vani Fucci gets the snakes wrapped around him and he runs off. Caucus runs up the, the centaur. He says, Too, where is he? Where's that? acid soul, that acrid, acidic, bitter soul. Where is he? And then he runs off. You notice that question doesn't get answered. You'll notice that this question doesn't get answered. These three spirits look up at Virgil and Dante and say, who are you guys? When does this ever get answered? It doesn't. Now you might say, oh, listen, something so dramatic happens, this crazy fusing metamorphosis, that they don't have time to answer the question, but they do have time, because Dante has enough time to silence Virgil, to listen carefully, to listen to what they're saying to each other, but all these questions and phrases come up, and it's very bizarre that the speech in Canto twenty doesn't have answers to it, it's often truncated, it's rarely even near a full line. It's such a difference from Canto 24, and I think it has to be intentional on Dante's part. There is a way that the give and take of normal conversation and the normal way you represent conversation, even go back to Francesca or go back to Chaco. The normal way you represent conversation is broken in Canto 25, I think it's important for us to see this, because, I mean, listen, they ask who they are, but they never get an answer. I didn't know who they were, our pilgrim tells us, but it came to pass, as it does through sheer coincidence a lot of the time, that one of them mentioned the name of another by saying, where in the world did Qianfa get off to? Once again, Here's another question that isn't necessarily answered. And then this strange bit. That's why I, to make my guide pay attention, set a finger from my chin to my nose. You know what he does? He puts his finger over his lips as if to say, shh, to silence Virgil this is curious. The pilgrim, maybe the poet, silences Virgil. Why? Well, we could talk about this thematically because we're about to hit an Ovidian metamorphosis. And surely there's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheekedness here from the poet that Virgil gets silenced before we descend to this metamorphosis that is right out of Ovid. And in fact, a remaking of an Ovid metamorphosis as we will discuss but there's something else larger here and that is not only do the questions often not get answered or not only is the dialogue broken or sometimes less than a full line there's there's one place where it's more a couple places maybe where it's more than a line but not only is the dialogue weird and truncated in 25, but there's also all this silencing that goes on. I mean, when Vani Fucci throws the figs, the the uh, vulgar hand gesture toward God, Vani is trying to basically silence God. Then Vani Fucci gets silenced by the snakes that wrap around his neck and he's unable to speak. He runs off. Then Caucus runs up, and we find out in Virgil's story of Caucus that basically Hercules. silenced caucus by giving him so many blows a hundred blows i mean he was dead by the 10th one then here we find out that virgil and dante are clearly having a conversation they're talking they're telling tales and these three souls come up and silence them and then dante silences virgil and i should just tell you there are silences ahead of us in Canto 25. There are moments of silencing ahead of us. Clearly, silences and silencing are important to what goes on in 25. And I think that you just need to think about that for a moment because what do poets do? They work in words. What is the one thing poets don't work in? Silence. Oh, (laughs) I suppose there's some John Keagian modernist poet who just published a blank page. I'm sure it's happened, but nonetheless, most poets work in words, not silence. And that silencing is so foregrounded in 25 seems important to a larger thematic. We're going to save that a little bit for the next episode of this podcast, but it's just important to note how much silencing goes on inside of this passage. Okay, let's pass on after Dante has silenced Virgil, to what the poet suddenly steps out and says to us. If, reader, the poet says, you're hesitant to believe what I'm about to say, it's no cause for surprise because I who saw it can still hardly permit myself to believe it. Notice that's so curious. Right after Virgil gets silenced, the poet steps out from behind the curtain and talks to us. The readers and says hey if you can't believe this don't worry i can barely believe it i want to say a couple things about this one i think it was singleton who said that the fiction the dominant fiction of dante's comedy is that it's not a fiction and here again we have this emphasis on the notion that I really saw this, this really happened. And if you think I'm pushing it here, and there are all reasons to think that it's being pushed here, if you think I'm pushing it, hey, I can barely believe it, and I'm the guy that saw it. And then <laughs> it's so important to see the truth claim that is being made here. And beyond the truth claim, the reality claim that is being made here. This is the biggest metamorphosis that is going on throughout comedy. What I am making up has a reality claim behind it. I just saw a manuscript illustration that someone posted on Twitter of a comedy of, I believe, from the fourteen hundreds, and the opening of Canto One shows Dante asleep in a bed in the manuscript in the. Illumination. And then, you know, right next to it, Dante's kind of getting out of bed and going out the door of his house into a dark wood. Clearly, this person illuminating the comedy believes that the comedy is a dream poem. He goes to sleep. He wakes up in a dark wood. But that's not the word in Canto 1. He doesn't wake up in a dark wood. He finds himself in a dark wood. I think that is extremely important to know because I do not believe this is a dream poem. I believe that our poet is constantly saying to us, I really did this. I really saw this. No wonder then in the cantos of fraud, the poet steps out so often to talk to us because surely none of us believes that the poet really saw this. So the question of fraudulence is big all around us. And in fact, It's interesting, I think, that this bit, if reader, you're hesitant to believe what I'm about to say, don't worry, because I can barely believe it, and I saw it. It's interesting that this is kind of a marginal bit. This is almost like marginalia written into the story, because the story's going down, right? You know, here they are, these three guys come up, where's Chiampha, you know, blah, 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 I, I silence Virgil, and then the story stops, and the poet addresses us, and then the story picks up again. It's almost like a little bit of marginalia inserted in there. And if you think back on Virgil's explanation of Caucus, when Caucus runs up the centaur with the snakes on his back and the dragon, Virgil's explanation is almost like marginalia. Virgil offers marginalia. That that is what somebody would write in the margin of a medieval manuscript to explain the point. Of what's happening, Virgil's commentary there on Caucus is a lot like marginalia. And in fact, Virgil's marginalia on Caucus raises more questions than it answers. Are those snakes tormenting Caucus, those snakes on his back, or, or is he just toting them around? is he in this pit because he's being punished for theft because he did steal the cattle from hercules or is he a tormentor in this pit is that dragon part of him or is he just toting it around right now and it just so happens the moment we see him he's got a dragon in his back. there's so many questions that get raised by virgil's incomplete explanation of carcass and in the same way the poet here steps out to us and offers marginal you know where i'm going with this right and it raises more questions does this really happen what kind of claims are being made not just true claims reality claims what kind of reality because we did how can they be reality claims when they're based on an Ovid myth are based on an Ovidian text. How can they be reality claims? You can't have seen this. You read it in Ovid. It mm, raises more questions <laughs> than it could possibly answer. So let's go on to the story. Well, I held my eyebrows up to get a good look at them, and I, look at the look at the emphasis here. You know, I I it's like I hold my eyes physically open so that I see what's happened. A serpent with six feet suddenly launched itself. Onto one of these guys and hugged him tight. Its middle feet got wrapped around his gut. Its front feet took hold of both his arms. Then it stuck its fangs first into one cheek, then into the other. Its back feet stretched down his thighs and it jammed its tail between them. I'm sure that you hear the weirdly sexual quality of what's happening right here. It has this very sexual dare I say it, beast with two backs movement on it. And it's put here in this weirdly eroticized place because where it comes out of Ovid is fully eroticized. In order to show you this, I want to read you the story in Ovid. This is in the Metamorphoses. It's in book four. It's lines 271 through three hundred seventy two. And I'm going to read you the whole story. This is the Rolf Humphreys translation is a bit long, but you know what? Sit back and enjoy it because this is where Dante gets this metamorphosis, at least as his starting point. Here it is. You're going to hear the story of a fountain with an evil reputation because its waters make men weak and feeble, whoever goes bathing there. The Causes hidden, the fountain's enervating power well-known. A boy, the son of Mercury and Cythera's goddess, was nurtured by the naiads in their caverns. You could recognize his father and his mother both in his handsome looks, and he took his name from both of them, Hermes and Aphrodite. Hence, you can see, he was called hermaphroditus. Fifteen years old, he left his native mountains, left Ida for the new delights, to wander in unknown lands, to look at unknown rivers, his eagerness making it very little trouble. And so he came to a pool, translucent even, to the very bottom. No marshy reeds grew round it, no sedge grass, no spiky rush. The water was clear as glass, and the pool's edges bordered by greenest lawn, and in the pool was dwelling a water nymph not one who cared for hunting, bending the bow, or racing. She would never follow Diana in the hunt. Her sisters used to reprove her, often for not taking quiver and spear, for mingling with her leisure the hardships of the chase." she wouldn't listen but only kept on bathing in the water or combing her lovely hair with a comb of boxwood or looking into the mirror of the water to find what dress was most becoming to her put on diaphanous garments and recline to rest on the soft greenery or gather bright colored flowers and she was gathering flowers on this particular day when she saw the youngster and wanted what she saw but still she waited Controlled her eagerness, a very little, just time enough to smooth her dress to wear her most becoming look, to be as pretty as ever she knew how. Then she called him, are you a god, dear boy? I could believe it, and if you are, I think you must be Cupid. If you're not a god, and only mortal, how lucky your parents are, and brother and sister and wet nurse, if you had one, but most lucky, luckiest of all, must be your bride, "'if any is worthy in your sight to be so promised. "'If there is such girl, "'let my pleasure be a secret kept between us. "'But if there is not, then marry me, "'and let's get in bed together.' "'That was all she said, "'but the youngster started blushing "'out a pure ignorance of love.' "'But blushing was so becoming. "'Apples have such color in the sunny orchards, "'or ivory when tented, or the moon eclipsed, "'the red below the white when the bronze vessels "'of the superstitious clang loud to bring her back to life. "'The naiad kept pleading, begging for a kiss, "'at least the kind one gives a sister. "'She was ready to throw her arms about his snowy neck. "'Stop it,' he cried. "'Will you stop it? I'm leaving this place and you.' "'Solmosis, trembling, answered, "'I'll leave the place to you then,' "'and pretended to go away, but looked back off "'and found bushes to hide in and remained there watching. "'And the boy, as if no one were looking at him, "'strolled over the grass, went wading in the water, "'and quickly, captivated by the coolness, "'flung off his clothes,' desire of the naked body held her spellbound her eyes were bright and burning as a sunglass shines she can hardly bear the waiting hardly postpone her pleasure mad to hold him amorous eager he slaps his body plunges into the pool goes flailing through the water a white and gleaming figure a lily flower or ivory translucent glass all around him "'I win. I have him,' she cried, stripped herself naked, dove, swam to him, and held him fast, saw his reluctant kisses, touched his body, stroked his unwilling breast, embraced and held him whatever way she could. He fought. He struggled.' but she wrapped herself around him as a serpent caught by an eagle borne aloft in tangles coils around head and talons or as ivy winds round great oaks or an octopus extends its prey within its tentacles he refused her the joy she wanted most but still she held him body to body he would not escape her. fight as he may oh grant me this she cried in prayer to the gods may no day ever come to separate us and they heard her prayer And the two bodies merged together, one face, one form, as when a twig is grafted on parent stock, both knit, mature together, so these two joined in close embrace, no longer two beings, no longer man and woman, but neither, but both hemephroditus saw that the water had made him half a man with limbs all softness he held out his arms lifted a voice whose tone was almost treble pleading father and mother grant me this may everyone hereafter who comes diving into this pool emerge half a man made weaker by the touch of this evil water it was granted that prayer and ever since that day the waters hold the contamination there's the story from Ovid. It is right out of the Metamorphoses, and you can see it is connected here. It is connected here to the fusing of two. In that case, you'll notice that the two fuse, but somehow the naiad still voices herself, and then Hermaphroditus still voices himself, even after the fusion. You'll note that he's also a fusion before it even starts. It says you could see both his mother and his father in him. This story becomes the basis of this metamorphosis in comedy. Dante changes it. He basically eradicates the structure of the story from the Ovidian myth, and instead he just takes up the transformation itself, and then he pushes it. You remember as I read it to you that there were the questions of eagles and ivies and octopus. Dante does the same thing, and we should look at those metaphors carefully. Dante picks up the ovidian metaphor of ivy but he expands it in order to explain this metamorphosis of these two things fusing together he says ivy never gripped a tree trunk so tightly as this nasty beast put its tendrils all around the guy's body the verb in the florentine has to do with shooting out tendrils and it does have a very sexualized feel to it so there's the first metaphor ivy. Then we move to the second metaphor. Then, as if they were made of hot wax, the passage goes on, they started to fuse together, mixing their colors until neither seemed what he or it had been at the start. So there's our second metaphor, wax. This is not in Ovid. This is clearly Dantean. Dante has taken the ivy metaphor, which is very cursely stated in Ovid, and he has expanded it into three lines. Now he's got a second metaphor of three lines, wax, and now he's got a third it's the same way that when paper burns, a dark brown color moves in front of a flame where it's not yet charred black, but all the white is long dead. What has happened here? Dante has given us three metaphors to explain this metamorphosis. And if you remember when Vani Fucci turned into ashes and then reconstituted, we got three metaphors. We got that deal about nobody could write an O and an I so fast remember? Then we got a metaphor about a phoenix burning up and coming back. And then we got a metaphor about a man falling down, whether from a demonic attack or an epileptic seizure. It wasn't clear, but still falling down and getting up and shaking it off. Notice that in the Vani Fuchi metamorphosis, there are three metaphors to explain it. And notice that in this metamorphosis, there are three metaphors to explain it. They're clearly being linked. Notice too that the Ovidian part is the metamorphosis itself, which calls us back to the naiad and Hermaphroditus. But the Dantean part are the metaphors that try to explain this metamorphosis. We could say that that ivy bit is based on the cursory reference in Ovid, but expanded, and then the next two, wax and paper, those are Dante's. So the poet has metamorphosized the metamorphosis from Ovid by A, clipping it, and B, offering his own metaphors for metamorphosis. You have to go back to the last episode of this podcast and think about poetics and metamorphosis and theft to see this in its full strange glory. So let's go on and see how the passage goes forward. The other two spirits were looking on, and each one cried out, Whoa, Agnelo, how you morph! See, you're already neither two things nor one. Okay, let's stop and talk about who these people are. They've identified this figure as Agnelo, and you should just know that the early commentary all across the board identifies this person as Angelo Brunelleschi. This is highly debatable. There are stories made up about Brunelleschi that, oh, he stole out of his parents' purses, that he was constantly a thief even as a little kid. Um, But you know what? Most of the commentariat is making up discussions of who this is to fill in the details. And if you remember earlier in the passage, when the three guys walk up, they say, where in the world did Qianfa get off to. Same thing. The early commentary all identifies him as Cianfodonati and claim he was kind of a cattle rustler or a cattle thief in Florence that Dante may have known him. I think all of this misses the point. There are two points that are worth noting here. One, these two remaining spirits who do not get metamorphosized at this moment speak in one voice. Now, let me tell you, It's very hard to talk together at the same time the same words. There is no chance that two spirits could say at the same moment, Wow, Angelo, how you morph. See, you're already neither two things nor one. It's just too big, right? It can't be... (laughs) Dante's playing with you. It can't be that two spirits say this entire bit all of a sudden at the same moment. So they have metamorphosized into one voice. And two, I think all those early commentators miss the point. I think Dante does not give us enough clues to fully identify these figures. Well, we can buy perhaps the early commentators' ideas of who these are, I prefer not, because I don't think Dante gives us enough referencing here to make sense of it, and I think that's important. In fact, let me push this farther. When the three come on the scene and they say, where in the world did Chianfa get off to? Almost every commentator believes that that six-footed serpent, we would say a lizard, Dante uses the word serpent, that six-footed serpent that darts out, launches itself and gets onto one of them and they fuse together, that that's Chianfa. How do you know that? Can you prove that? I can't prove it. I can't prove that, that that's Chianfa. For all I know, Chanfa got chased off by cockas. For all I know, Chanfa's gotten bit by another snake and turned to ashes. For all I know, Chanfa's wandered off and is in a crack in the rock somewhere. I have no proof that this reptile that dashes out is Chianfa. Maybe maybe chianfa has been turned into a lizard. I don't know that. So that question, where in the world did John Fett get off to, looks like it might have an answer, and most commentators think there's an answer there, a serpent. But I'm going to tell you, I think the text is set up so that you can't know, so that you don't know, and so that identities become confused, they become truncated, they become downable. I think that's the whole thing point of this crazy metamorphosis. I would encourage you, even if you can, to look at the Florentine itself. The Florentine is a web, in this passage, of bizarre pronouns. This one, that one, he... And if you push it, some of those weird pronouns, one, this one, that one, he... Some of them are hard to pin down and you have to make interpretive decisions pinning them down. I think that's incredibly important to the passage because the passage is about identity, about truncated identities, about truncated questions. That's why I would say that all of the work of the early commentators to identify these guys is misdirected. It should be stranger than you imagine because after all... What could be stranger than this nightmare scenario of half-lizard, half-man? The passage ends. By that point, the two heads had become one. As the two expressions fused into one face until both were lost, two arms got made out of four limbs. The thighs along the calves, the belly, and the chest became body parts that were never seen before. Each former feature was obliterated. This perverse image was now both two things and nothing. And I I would... Tie that obliteration back to that metaphor of the flame going across the page. Remember that metaphor? The flame is going across the page and it's turning it brown in front of the flame before it chars it black. And it says where it's not yet charred black, but all the white is long dead. I would tie that long dead, that dead reference there to the white, to this obliteration. There is, dare I push it, a nihilism afoot here. Each form of feature was obliterated. This perverse image was now both two things and nothing. That is screaming at us. And such as it was, it went off with slow steps. The claim here is that what's standing in front of us is bifurcated and at the same time, nothing. Wow. Talk about implications, philosophic, theologic, poetic. We have got a lot to talk about in this passage. So subscribe to this podcast, rate it. I see that most of you come through Apple Podcasts. Just jump down to the bottom of the Apple Podcast page you can drop a rating right there and a comment that would be fabulous there is so <laughs> much to talk about that you've got to subscribe and come back next time because we get to talk about the implications we've just explicated the passage we've seen its ovidian bases we've seen it's kind of funny silencing of virgil we've talked a little bit about the incompleteness of identity but there's so much more to say gonna say it on the next walking with Dante. i'm mark scarborough see you then